morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day. I've been um, celebrating Father's Day the traditional way this year, which is forgetting that it's Father's Day until yesterday, and then saying, oh, so that's how I celebrated. I hope you fathers have a better way of celebrating uh, than I did. Uh, being a father is, is a lot of fun. Uh, it can be, I don't know, is it thankless? I don't, I don't know. I think you, you get thanks for it sometimes. Uh, but it does take a lot of energy. So praying for you guys, those who are fathers, uh, those who are trying to be grandfathers and all that stuff, uh, just praying for you guys uh, to, to have the strength to do it. Um, I'm really excited about this morning. Uh, I had some time off this past week in Arizona. So I went from, you know, no sun, cloudy to too much sun. It was 115 degrees in Arizona, um, but still no tan because that's genetics. Um, but Ryan was able to cover, and I was really thankful for him for stepping up uh, while we were away. He's, he's out of town this week, but Ryan, wherever you are, thank you. Um, we are back in the book of Acts, okay? So um, we've been going through here. This is our third week back through the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 13, verse 13, if you're following along. Um, we are um, going into a section of the book uh, where Paul is going out. Paul, he's actually still called Saul at this point. His name just randomly changes in the middle. No, they don't really talks about it. Um, but, but Paul, we'll just call him Paul, is going out. He's um, going out with some friends, a guy named Barnabas, uh, traveling around the Roman world as a missionary. And he's kind of back in his home stomping grounds, Asia Minor, uh, where, he, where he was uh, just north of Tarsus, uh, where he grew up. And what Paul's habit is, and what we see in this chapter, is that whenever he's traveling to a new place, the first place he stops off is in the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue, and he starts preaching the gospel there to the Jews who are living there. Now, uh, there's probably a lot of reasons why that's his strategy. It's a, it's a strategic thing in terms of making inroads to a new place and talking about Jesus among that, those people. Probably a lot of reasons. Um, one is like, like Paul was Jewish, right? That's what he was. He was Jewish, and so he'd go to the synagogue and find other Jews. And he was not only just, just Jewish, but he was a highly credentialed Jew, like a very well-educated and a person who was regarded uh, as, as well-trained in the, in the religion of Judaism. And so he went to the synagogue... And when he was there, he would have walked in, and because of the way he dressed and the things that he could talk about and the people that he knew, he would have been immediately identified as somebody who would want, they would want to have come up and speak, because he was an important person. He was connected, right? They didn't know about this whole Jesus part of him, because they were far off and away from Jerusalem and, and unaware of the controversy surrounding Jesus and unaware of the persecution that was going on, right? But they'd see Paul, and they'd say, okay, we're, we want to have you speak to the people. And so uh, that was Paul's easiest in to gather a crowd and start talking to them about Jesus. But beyond that, um, it, it's, it's probably a good strategy because it is easier to talk to people about Jesus who already know about God, right? Because the thing about this book, right, is there's two parts. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament, Hebrew scriptures and Greek scriptures, right? And so what we find as we study this book is that they're intimately connected, and Jesus' ministry was talked about in the Old Testament a lot by these Hebrew uh, writers, prophets. They were anticipating the coming of Jesus. And so when Paul shows up into a place and he wants to talk to people about Jesus, he's finding that it's easiest to talk to people about Jesus who already know the first half of the story. 
Makes sense to me, right? They already know who this Yahweh God is. They already know about the prophets. They already have some sense of God's plans and his action in the world. And so what we see in this passage is Paul's going to a place where people are already familiar with the first half of the story because they're Jewish. And he's able to make a compelling case, an argument, for Jesus' ministry because they already know the backstory, right? They're, he's able to contextualize the story of Jesus in the work of God throughout history. Um, because, because he understands and he explains, and that's what we see him explaining in this chapter, that Jesus' ministry is the culmination, it's the next step in God's revelatory work through Israel and to the whole world. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But I just want to say this clearly and acknowledge this. It is harder to explain the gospel, to explain Jesus, to people who don't know the Israel story, like most of the people that you know, right? Like most of the people that you work with and that, you, that you're going around in your life. Like, like you're not around talking to a lot of religious Jews in your day-to-day life, right? You're not around even probably talking to people who have a Christian background. In fact, when you're going around talking to people about Jesus, you're talking about people who have almost no context to understand the who, what, why, when, how of the gospel. It's harder to talk about Jesus to people who don't have the background. Um, It's like... um, it's, it's like, you know, if, if you just come up to people who you, you, you start talking about Jesus and talk, start talking about Yahweh and God and all the things he did, it's like if I went to a restaurant and, and uh, I sat down and the waiter immediately just brought me a meal. I'd be like, I didn't order this meal. I don't know what this meal is. This isn't what, what I was in the mood for. I have no context for you bringing this food here, and you're weird, sir. I'm not going to give you a tip. Please go away and bring your manager over, right? It kind of would weird people out. Um, Paul understands that he, he walks into this place and he, he knows what people's appetites are. He knows the way that the Jews think about the world. And so he's able to serve them up a little dish of Jesus, right? But if I were to do that to somebody who didn't understand the context, I would weird them out. Talking about Jesus um, is, is, is harder to do among people who don't have a context for what God has done, his, the story of, of, of God up to the point of, of Jesus coming. Um, and I'm just going to put that little idea on hold because we're going to be talking about, well, how do we do that to people who don't have that context towards the end of the message today? But before we do that, we're just going to jump into the text, okay? So again, Acts 13, 13. Uh, let's see what Paul's up to. I've got to, yeah, sorry. We're going to go through a lot of text today, so they're small. Uh, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and went back to Jerusalem, and they continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out uh, of it with a mighty arm. Uh, And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. (laughs) Put up with them in the wilderness. I like that. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, and then they asked for a king. 
And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. And for 40 years, after, uh, for 40 years, and after removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out my will. And as I was reading that, I realized I forgot to pray. So we're going to do that now. Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that it's better than my words in, in every respect. And so, Lord, we just want to hear from you, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, come, just, just teach us this morning, Lord. Uh, speak to us. Uh, reveal to us what you're up to in the world. Lord, equip us to be people who go out on mission and uh, can talk about uh, what you've done and understand it well, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Sorry about that. So Paul and his buddies, they head, they're, they're, they're traveling around. They go to a place called Perga, where evidently nothing happens, because that's all that we know. They got there, and then they left. Went to Perga, and then they went to a place of, called Pisidian. It's kind of northeast of Tarsus, uh, where, where, um, where Paul is from. And when they arrive there, they head to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And because, again, Paul is an impressive person, he's invited to, to speak to the congregation. And he addresses them uh, as Israelites. He says, you guys are Israelites. And he says, and you who fear God. Uh, again, these are, these are literally people who are born into Judaism, who practice Judaism. And then people who fear God, that's non-Jews, people who are not born as Jews, who, who are still attend and understand the religion of Judaism. They come to the synagogue and they're, they're welcomed in to learn about God. But that's all meaning that they are uh, people who know the first half of the story, right? These are people who have context for, for Jesus' ministry because they understand uh, the Old Testament. Uh, so he, he talks to them, and he goes on, uh, in, much like in the manner that Peter was, was presenting the gospel in previous times in Acts. Like, like it's really essentially the same nuts and bolts kind of a gospel presentation that Peter would be giving to Jews as well. Um, he's talking about the history of God and, and God's people. Um, and he, he's explaining that, you know, God chose Israel. God, God brought them, Israel, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, and he protected them from famine, and he prospered them in Egypt, and then he brought them out of Egypt when things got a little dicey there, and then he protected them and watched over them and put up with them uh, while they wandered in the desert. And, and you'll notice what Paul is really emphasizing is the goodness and faithfulness of God, that he's always cared for them at every step of the road, but he's doing that, emphasizing the faithfulness of God, by also talking about Israel's worst, most embarrassing moments. Right? He's saying, God's super faithful, Israel, not so much. Uh, that's basically the story that he's telling. He talks about God protecting them from Egypt. You know, Egypt, the place uh, where they got because the brothers sold their brother into slavery. Oh, yeah, that place, that Egypt. He, he, he talks about uh, God uh, leading them into the wilderness, you know, the place where they had to spend 40 extra years because they were so disobedient and grumbling and complaining all the time. That wasn't God's plan to keep them there 40 years, but they were just so obstinate that they had to stay there. He, he, he talks about God raising up judges and a king, Saul, a very bad king. Two examples of Israel's prolonged failings and stubbornness. He's pointing out that even though they weren't obedient at all, even though at every step they found every opportunity to complain and resist God's plan, God was still faithful to them. 
That's the point he's making. A little uncomfortably, I might add. Uh, but he then goes on, and he gets to the good part, right? At the end of this, this little section, he says, After removing Saul, the bad king, he finally raised up David as their king, and he said about them, he testified about David, I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out my will. So finally, God's been faithful, faithful, faithful. Israel continues to, to just not measure up. They continue to be, be, be stubborn. Finally, God puts this man, this man David, this, this king who would rule over them and would be faithful and would carry out his will. So there's, there's good news finally for Israel. After this long, drawn-out process of disobedience and failing, God raises up a leader who will carry out his will. But that's not the end of the story, right? We, we continue on. Uh, from this man's descendants... As he promised, as God promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. Now, as John was com uh, completing his mission, he said, what do you who do you think I am? I am not the one, but the one is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. Brothers and sisters, Paul goes on, children of Abraham's race and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize him or, uh, or the sayings of the prophets that they read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate, the Roman ruler, to have him killed. And when they had carried out all uh, that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And so Paul presents this case connecting their story up to this point to the life of Jesus. He says, Jesus, who is the direct descendant of David, he is the promised ruler, the one that the prophets have been talking about, the one that was going to come in the spirit of David and rule over Israel and establish them mightily just as David did. The one who Israel's been waiting for, saying, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, is connecting Jesus with, with, um, with David. He talks about how John the Baptist had pointed out that this was the Messiah, this was, he, it was Jesus, he's now come, he's now come. The faithful Messiah, the king who would be like David will come, he's coming to do, like David, the will of the Lord. But uh, ever typical, right, of the story of Israel, just like we've been talking about, the rulers who were in charge of waiting on and overseeing the people of Israel, they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus came to, to set everything right, to be the promised one, but the, the, they rejected him. They did what the prophets said they were going to do. And they, were, they did what Israel had been doing up to that point. They failed to listen to God. They rejected God's plan. And instead, they condemned Jesus to death, giving him over to the Romans to be killed. And, and then they put him in a tomb, believing that we took care of this Jesus problem. But something else happened. God raised Jesus from the dead. 
So suddenly, uh, this problem they think that they, they solved, it actually becomes a much bigger problem, a much more persistent problem. This Jesus person just will not go away. So why did God raise him from the dead? Well, because even when God's people had been faithless, sinful, disobedient, God remains faithful. Even when, 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 when God's people just reject his plan to save them, he remains faithful. You disobey the Lord, Israel disobeys the Lord, God remains faithful to them. You kill the Savior, the one you've been waiting for. You stubbornly oppose him and you hand him over to be killed, thinking that you're solving a problem, but you're actually creating a problem for yourself. God is still faithful. God is still going to do what he intends to do. He's still going to pour out mercy despite their obstinance. Paul is a messenger of the persistent faithfulness of God in the face of stubbornness, pride, resisting God's will. He says, We ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. He's been saying it over and over and over again, giving good news, promise to our ancestors, to our people. He's saying, God's going to do something. He's going to deliver us. He's going to reestablish us. He's going to be faithful despite all things. He says, look at it's being fulfilled in Jesus. All these promises, all these Old Testament promises that you've been waiting for, Jesus is completing them. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the substance of God's promised faithfulness, the realization of his faithfulness. Jesus is the one sent to save God's people, to carry out God's will, to establish them, to win over a stubborn people, and to save the very people who rejected him. And he does that by resurrection, by dying on a cross and yet coming back to life. This resurrection, this resur the res resurrected Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in a way that David could never be precisely because he died and then rose again and now lives eternally faithful Lord over all. Paul goes on, he explains it. As to his raising him from the dead... Never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. The point Paul's making is that Jesus died and he was resurrected, and because of that fact, he continues to be alive. He's resurrected eternally unto life, and he continues to be Lord. He is the one sitting at the right hand of the Father. He continues to hear the prayers of people. He continues to save and work. He continues to do what God called him to do, to oversee the nations and to watch over history and to care for his church. He continues to be Lord. He continues to rule and reign over and establish his kingdom even now. Then, like he's speaking to them, you know, not long after Jesus' birth, but 2,000 years later, Jesus is still alive. He died once, and he's still alive. And he is ruling in a way that David could not do. Because when David died, David stayed dead. But when Jesus died, 
he rose eternally. David served God's purpose for his generation, for David's generation, but Jesus completes God's purposes for all generations. He's the king, the persistently faithful, powerful, wonderful, saving God come to intercede for stubborn people. That's who Jesus is. He remains the object of God's plan for the world 2,000 years on and, and thousands of years beyond that. So what is that plan? Paul explains it. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, through this man, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Jesus died so that sin would be forgiven Forgiveness is proclaimed. Who sins? Who sins? Everyone's. I mean, everyone's. We read the Bible. It is, he died for the sins of the world, including the sins of God's people, the ones who should have known better, the ones who rejected him despite their knowledge and expectation that he would be coming. They didn't recognize him. They put him to death. Those people, he died for them. The sell your brother into slavery, Wilderness wandering, doing right in your own eyes, bad king-making, Messiah-crucifying people of God, those are the very people that Jesus died to save. People like me, I didn't do any of those things, wasn't around then, didn't have the opportunity, probably would have taken it had I been there, right? But people just like me, who don't know up from down, Jesus died to save and forgive people like that. He died for them. He died for me. He died for us who have no idea who Jesus is, who would have no idea who Jesus is, uh, you know, know him from Adam. God's plan in Jesus is to forgive any who turn to him and to reconcile with them, to have peace with them so that they can know God and be filled with life and be restored into God's plan or his original plan to save them, to bless them, to care for them. His plan is to forgive, let's be clear, his plan is to forgive even the worst of people, even the best of people. His plan is that sin would be forgiven, and so the message, the, the crux of the message that Paul has is that forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you, the people of God, or not the people far from God. In Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. And I think we have to get, get this. God isn't just wanting to forgive and express his love to those who have been a little bit bad, but not all that bad, right? His plan, as, as Paul is explaining it, is to forgive the, the worst of people, like the people who killed Jesus. That's a pretty bad thing. God comes to save and love and you kill him. I can't think of a lot of worse things than that. He's saying, look at those are the very people who this forgiveness is for. God is forgiving even the persistently unfaithful people who absolutely had all the knowledge to know better. Because every single day they're on the Sabbath and listening to the scriptures, they're hearing about it, he's coming. And those same people are the ones who are now hearing about forgiveness. The people who should have known better. Just think about it. Jesus' resurrection, like part of God's plan 
so that he would be alive eternally to be the interceding, overseeing, God's will establishing king of all things, it is by necessity preceded by Jesus' death. Because you can't resurrect what's still alive. Jesus' faithful act of forgiveness His self-sacrifice is precipitated by the sinful and rebellious acts of his people. And that's exactly what God's plan was. Because forgiveness is for the worst of us. God's mercy is for those who should absolutely have known better than needing it. I like how N.T. Wright explains it. He says this, The Jerusalemites and their leaders, he says, didn't understand the scriptures that were read to them Sabbath by Sabbath, but they fulfilled those scriptures by condemning him. It isn't just that the scriptures spoke of the coming Messiah and they failed to understand them. The scriptures spoke of the coming Messiah being rejected by his people, and all unwittingly, they fulfilled precisely those prophecies. This is a twist in the story which takes us down, deep down, to the mystery of God's call to Israel, uh, sorry, God's call of Israel in the first place. When God wanted to save the world, he called a people whom he knew to be part of the problem, as well as being from then on the bearers of the solution. This is one of the hardest things that Paul has to say, but it can't be avoided All, Jew and Gentile alike, must be humbled before God if they are to receive his rescue and new creation as what it is, a gift of grace, and not a favor automatically reserved for a special few. Jesus died, (laughs) he rose again to save the worst of people. Not just to save a few, to save absolutely the worst of people, the very people who were consistently so, so bad and obstinate would not listen to him, and they killed the Savior, the provision. Jesus died for those people. God is up to something. He's making a way to forgive even the most egregious of sin and to make it very clear that that is the sort of God that he is. He's making a way to confront the deeply embedded power of sin in people that we are persistently selfish, self-serving at every opportunity. He's making a way to dig down and root out the problem of sin to expose us to the fact that we need something uh, much bigger than a gospel of sin management, as if we could deal with our problems ourselves or our sin ourselves. We can't. He's showing us that we actually need a gospel that is so much bigger than us and bigger than us being good people or better than half the people in the world, right? That's not the call. The call is for salvation being proclaimed to the worst and we count ourselves among those people having received grace and good news, not because we deserved it at all. It has nothing to do with whether I'm better than most people or worse than most people. Salvation is for the worst and the best. It is our only hope. The gospel is good news for everybody. He goes on, he says, Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. 
Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe even if someone were to explain it to you. He gives them good news, the good news of the gospel. Everyone who believes is justified uh, through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. The law of Moses was a sin management issue. It was a sin management scheme, something to take care of the, the, the badness of people, at least until God came up with the permanent solution in the fullness of time in Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, through the forgiveness of Jesus, it deals with the stuff that the law of Moses could not deal with, the deep-rooted sin stuff in my heart. God forgives that at the cross. And so you beware <laughs> that you don't be like these stubborn people, scoffers, who just don't ever like recognize the goodness, the grace of God. That's his warning to people. I made the statement earlier, began the message just kind of saying this, that it, it's hard to explain the gospel to people who don't know or believe the Israel story, right? It's hard to explain the gospel. It's hard to explain forgiveness of sin to people who don't have this context for God's revelation, you know, in, 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 in the Israel story. It's hard to explain to people who don't know anything about God that if they trust in Jesus, they will be justified or forgiven, of all the stuff that the law of Moses couldn't justify you from. Because they're going to say, what's the law of Moses? And what's justification? And who's Jesus? They're going to have all these questions, right? Like, so, like if, if I gave this gospel presentation to somebody who didn't know any of the stuff about Israel, they'd just be like, okay, I've got to go now, <laughs> right? Um, they, would, they would be very confused by it. It's not going to mean anything to them. So let's, let's ask this question. How do I talk about this gospel, which is good news to all people, not just Jews? It's good news to all people. How do I talk about it to people who don't think they need it, who have no context for this story? Um, there's a guy, uh, Paul Gould. He's a professor somewhere. I don't know. Um, he has a book called Cultural Apologetics. It's really good. And um, he makes an argument. I've got a slide kind of of his, uh, his model. We're going to, over the next couple weeks, I'm going to be like, introducing this model and developing it further. Um, but he makes the argument uh, that there is a way to, to approach the gospel to the point where it's like, you know, like I kept this analogy before that, you know, presenting the gospel to, to people who have no context for Israel is like just like a waiter coming up and serving people a meal that they didn't order. Like people aren't going to understand it. But, but he makes the point um, that everybody, you know, has an appetite. Everybody has longings. Everybody has things that they desire, no matter, no matter where they come from, no matter what their context, right? And, and so what we need to learn is the skills of, of a good waiter, essentially. A, a good waiter who can draw out from people, well, what are you hungry for? And what are the things that you're longing for? And, and can I suggest to you that there's a meal? There's something that could actually scratch all those itches. Mixing metaphors. Uh, Satisfy those hungers, right? Um, there, there's something that we can offer. There's this, this good news that I have that actually is going to perfectly satisfy the things that you have. You don't know how to put, have a language around those, those things that you, that you have, right? And you don't have this worldview, this Israel worldview, but you, you, you are a created person, and so you have certain longings. And he makes the argument that everyone has these three longings. They have a longing for truth, 
Everybody has a sense that there's truth in the world and that we should be able to discover it somehow and that it matters that we know what is true or not, right? Everybody has that, whether they're Jewish or not. Everybody has a longing for goodness. Everybody wants to be good. They have a sense that there is good and there is bad, and sometimes it's hard to identify what those things are, but everybody has an innate sense that they want to be on the good side of things because they want to feel good about themselves morally, socially, culturally, politically. These are the, the, the things that we think about in terms of goodness, right? And then everyone has a, a longing for beauty. People believe or, or want to believe innately that the world is beautiful, that life is beautiful. Everybody can appreciate art if they take the time to. <laughs> Everybody has a sense that there are moments of beauty in life and that they form part of what makes life significant and meaningful. And so what we can do is what well, we can't, we can't, well, we, we can't explain the Israel story if we have enough attention, right? But even before that, we can understand that people have these longings, and we can become people who develop the skills of explaining the gospel and explaining how the gospel meets these innate longings of people. Um, so we're going to talk about, the, again, this model over the next couple of weeks, but I just want to apply this in one direct way uh, here, uh, particularly around the longing of goodness, okay? Because everything that we're talking about, the forgiveness of sins, has everything to do with people's core desire to be good, to figure out what does it mean for, for me to live a good life and how do I be good. And so I've got another, another slide here that uh, starts to explain that. Uh, if Paul Gould's model, he explains that each of these things, we have a capacity, a natural capacity, where we as human beings start to pursue these things, right? And so in terms of our, our goodness, we start to pursue goodness through our conscience. You have a conscience, I have a conscience. Your conscience is not um, very accurate, right, necessarily. Like any instrument, it needs to be calibrated, and maybe it's, it, it can be calibrated to a lot of things. So a lot of people have a conscience, and they say, oh, I know right from wrong, but it's like everybody's is a little different, right? So how does that work? Well, we all develop in ourselves standards in, in ways that we believe that what makes me good and what makes me bad, things that I will do, things that I won't do, things that I will believe, things that I won't believe, and essentially, the conscience involves almost always developing something like, like what we have on this next slide. It involves creating um, in-groups and out-groups. That language makes sense? Usually, when we exercise our conscience, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're just thinking of habits, behaviors, characteristics of, of people, of course, that we happen to be in the in-group, Right? And so people on the in-group, people, good people, right? We say good people, people like me, myself and people like me, we do certain things. And this could be any things, right? So we create in-groups, and then we create out-groups, people not like me, right? And what we see in our particularly polarized world is that the out-groups start to be created along ideological lines, moral issues, cultural issues, political issues. We see that all the time, right? Where people are thinking, oh, how do I know who's a good person? Well, they vote like I vote. That's how I know who's a good person. How do I know who's a good person? They look like me. They think like me. They were raised like me. That's how I They're like me. And then people who are not like that, those are out-group people, so they must be bad in some way. So as long as I stay in my in-group that I've created, because my conscience has been calibrated to this kind of arbitrary belief about what makes somebody good, then I'm good, right? 
As long as I'm not like those bad people, then I continue to think of myself as having a sense of goodness. It's actually never satisfying to think of myself this way because I actually know myself deeply, even though I might vote the right way or be the right way, have the right kind of job, look the kind of right way, I actually kind of know I'm sort of faking it. I'm actually not that great. (laughs) This is what we do. This is how we manage goodness. Everybody does this on some level. But actually, the gospel kind of messes with our category. The gospel is different. Like, like what we're saying, like, like what Paul's explaining here. The gospel says this, the in-group, no one's in it. <laughs> Israel wasn't in it. They, like, they had everything, all the tools available to them to be good people. They had all the knowledge, all the revelation. God was constantly, every Sabbath they get together, hey, I'm going to send somebody and you better be prepared. And when he gets here, don't kill him. And then they killed him, <laughs> right? So they didn't do it. Oh, man, what chance do we stand? So, so like, as I'm explaining the gospel to people, you basically say, look, here, here's what the Bible says about who's in. Nobody's in. Jesus is in. I, didn't put, I thought about maybe putting Jesus, but that's kind of obnoxious, right? Jesus is in. Nobody else is in. It's like, good for Jesus. Um, but nobody's in. You're not in. I'm not in. We're not in, according, according to God's world. Like, and who's in the out group? Everybody. I'm on the out group. I, I'm not good. I, I have not, by virtue of anything I've done, any, any way I voted, any uh, way I look, certainly not by my haircut, uh, I, I've not put myself in the in-group. I've not earned my way in there at all. There's no way to do it. Like if Israel, who had all the revelation, like they couldn't be faithful to what God has said, what chance do I have? I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm not looking at my wife when I said that. Um, Okay, next slide. But what does Jesus do? The gospel is this. The gospel is this. Jesus forgives sin. He takes that out group, which involves everybody, and he says, you know what? I'm pouring out grace and mercy. I am going to encircle that out group. There's people who have have no context for understanding who I am, and I am just going to reveal myself. When John talks about Jesus, he talks about him as the light of the world. He's just coming in. Light, I, I was funny, we, we, talked, we went through 1 John with the youth group. I was teaching on this past Wednesday. And uh, I, I, we were reading this. And, and 1 John is just like a prolonged metaphor about light. John really likes that metaphor. Jesus is the light. We need to walk into the light. But that's not like a moral thing. It's, a, it's the light just reveals. Like Jesus just comes and he just shows us who we are. Like that's in the way that he's light. He just comes and says, yeah, you, you're really messed up. You really are unfaithful. You are really, you really persistently are failing even your own standards of goodness. Jesus just comes and shows us that. And he says, oh, and can I also show you something else? I am going to be gracious. And I am going to be forgiving. And I'm going to love you despite all your inadequacies. Jesus comes and by his grace, by his sacrifice, he encircles this outgroup with everybody, including me. And he just says, you can have grace. And you can have it on the basis of, let's see the next slide, on the basis of faith. Not on the basis of, oh, do better. Not on the basis of, oh, you know, like, just avoid X, Y, Z thing. And if you don't do those things, then you'll, you'll be good. It's on the basis of, like, like, when the lights turn on, just using your eyes and seeing, oh, the world is not what I thought it was. The world is not just divided up into in-groups and out-groups. And by the way, when, when Christians, when we impose that thinking, that mentality of in-groups and out-groups, we end up diluting our faith and our practice, right? Because it's really easy 
to, to, to adopt cultural trends. And, and you see it on the... Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> you see it on the left and the right. Like, I mean, right, sometimes, like, there's, there's, there's certain movements um, on, on the progressive side of things where it's a lot of times secular ideas of justice are really about figuring out who's bad and who's good and imposing that on, on Christianity. And you end up diluting Christianity. Because, because Christianity is this thing where everybody's bad, nobody's good, everybody's messed up. We all need God's grace, right? And so if I start to impose this other standard, these other ways of assessing what's, who's in and out, right? Usually dividing up people, uh, sometimes racially, socioeconomically, or, or whatever, then that dilutes my faith. But again, on, on the other side, on, on the right, we do this too. We start to think, oh, well, people don't vote a certain way. Well, they must not, they must, must not really be Christians. They, they, can't, they can't do the, these things, right? Anytime we, we, we impose on the, the revealed system of what makes a person good or bad, which is, my goodness, comes not from me, but only from the grace of God, because there's nothing I could do. Anytime we, we, we impose a work on top of that, we dilute the gospel every single time. The gospel is for everybody, no matter culture, uh, voting habits, background. And I'm not saying that it, it, the gospel means that we can all just stay the same. It certainly doesn't. It actually solves the problem of goodness by teaching us to be transformed people. My good friend Dallas Willard talks about how really Jesus' ministry is about the restoration of goodness to the soul. It's about, about giving people the opportunity to come in and to know God and not just know God and just be forgiven and, okay, I'm not going to be changed at all, but I know God and I start to have a passion for the things that he loves. I'm going to stop being a person who has contempt for other people and who likes to put people in out groups and, and hate them and talk about how they're, they're icky and gross and I'm okay over here with my nice little church holy huddle or my family or whatever it is, right? Instead of people who have contempt for other people, we start to become, because we're walking in the light, we're seeing the world as Jesus sees it, and people who have love for other people, because Jesus died for all the worst of people just like me. And so how can I hate my brothers and sisters, even though they really are rude and obnoxious and they don't think quite right? How can I hate people? How can I treat them contemptuously when Jesus loves them so much? If I understand what God has done, then by faith, faith is just understanding and living a life consistent with what I know to be true about who God is revealed in Jesus Christ, then my life is going to be changed. And I'm not going to just be theoretically uh, like a good person, as in that I'm not going to be like punished by God, but I'm going to be transformed into a truly good person by practicing everyday discipleship. Ooh, I got that in there. Instead of being a person devoted to my passions, like, you know, like self-satisfying, uh, lust, greed, all the things that we experience as people, I start to become a person who is devoted instead to God and to seeking his will first and to building his kingdom instead. And so I can sacrifice and I can give and I can uh, put myself, uh, you know, last and I can just say that's the better way of being because I've realized that actually what makes life good and what makes me good is that I just trust Jesus with everything. And so I don't have to indulge my passions, but I can be devoted to God above everything else. Instead of serving myself, putting myself first, watching out for number one, I can serve hurting people, broken people. I can put them first. And I can give sacrificially to the point where it hurts. And I am probably not better as a result, because I know that I am in a world that is just full of God's grace. 
everything about my life and about what I see God doing points me to the fact that God is gracious and he's kind. And so I can, and you can, be good. Not because you're good, but because you can recognize that God is good and he's faithful. He's worthy of trust. He's worthy of, of, of just like giving, of like living as if what he says is true. He's worthy of all those things. C.S. Lewis says the doors of hell are locked from the inside. What this model shows us is that like, it's not that, that Jesus like brings about grace and that everybody walks in grace. A lot of us want to walk with our eyes closed and not see the light, not recognize what Jesus has done. We want to reject him. We want to continue to live in this system where, no, my goodness is going to come from my good works and, and being better than a certain other type of people that I've created. That is to close your eyes and, and to cut yourself off from this work that Jesus has done. But all that we're to do to step out of this place of being the out group, being cut off, alone, alienated from God, is to open our eyes. To see and recognize and to believe and to put our faith, faith, which is like just this way of just, just saying, okay, no, this is reality. This is reality. This is what's ultimately true. And so because I recognize that it's what's real, my life, my, my actions and my, my thinking and all the other stuff is going to come into place from there. Worship team can come up now. Um, but here's the thing, like, the gospel is this great news. It solves the problem of goodness, and it solves it for all people. And so what I just want to encourage you guys, you know, as you go out, um, to start thinking about this. Start thinking about it. Uh, because you'll, you'll be able to talk more competently and confidently about stuff like this the more you think about it. The, the scripture, like, we're called to meditate upon the word of God. It's not just like, oh, I know a couple things about God and that's good enough. Like, no, we're supposed to, like, like deeply immerse ourselves in what God says is true. And you are surrounded by people. You are surrounded by people who want to be good. Good, to have a sense of goodness, who want to have their, their consciences satisfied. And they're coming up with all these schemes that just will never satisfy them. And so, so you, you can proclaim the gospel to a person like that just by keeping your eyes open. And when, when people are starting to express those ideas, like, I, I think this is supposed to make me good, you can kindly and graciously say, can I just like suggest to you maybe a better way, a better way to be good, which is by faith to recognize that God is available. He wants a relationship with you. Like he died for your sins so that you don't have to manage this anymore. And instead you can just live a life of trusting him where he's gonna shape your very soul 
and that by fellowship with him and pursuing him and being a disciple who's devoted to him, you are going to be truly become a transformed person. We can proclaim that message. And by the way, we can live that ourselves by being everyday disciples, being people who are really saying, okay, I recognize this is what Jesus says is true. And so then I'm going to do the habits, the disciplines. I'm going to be praying. I'm going to be worshiping. I'm going to be studying the word of God. I'm going to be living after, like in a manner that I actually believe and practice what I believe to be true. We, we can be living that way. We can be being transformed and we can be inviting others to do the same. So I'm really excited to go along here. We're going to talk more about this model again. I think probably all the way through, we're going to keep doing it into Acts through for four more chapters till Acts 17 where Paul is uh, at Mars Hill not that Mars Hill, uh, Mars Hill uh, presenting the gospel to in, in Athens. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about that and uh, looking forward to that. And I'll, I'll have I'll maybe like give like a handout of the whole model at some point, so you don't have to take pictures every week or whatever. Uh, but let's pray, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, I thank you that you've put us in a place uh, that's not easy. It's not easy sometimes to live in this world. It's not easy to live in a period of time where there's so much cultural change and because like culture isn't uh, homogenous anymore, like there's a lot of conflict and different ideas about what makes for good. Lord, I thank you that we are called to be a voice proclaiming the truth of your grace, your mercy, and your love, and the things you've done, Lord. Would you equip us, Lord, for that? Would you make us bold, Lord, people who can understand the difference, the difference between what's false, like in worldly systems of sin management and goodness management, but would you let us really feel deeply and know deeply what's true, Lord, that you are the one from whom grace comes and you are the one who is forgiving, Lord. It is only by your sacrifice, by your love, and by your mercy that we can be set right and find goodness, truth, and beauty, Lord. Would you fill us with those things this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.